Hey everybody, it is episode 22 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, Chris is joining and we have Steve on the line. Hey Steve. Hello. Steve is joining us remotely on the phone for this intro as we intro part two of our episode with Beer and Coffee with John Shrupp that we released last week. We'll have the second half of that conversation starting shortly, but we wanted to intro this one with a couple of current events that we have to mention and we'll start with those close to home, close to Rogue. We had a bunch of impressive Rogue results this past weekend at races and marathons all across the country. But one that we have to mention was our from our episode number two guest, Allison Maxis. She's the head of Rogue Expeditions for us and also is a pretty damn impressive marathoner in her own right. She ran a marathon PR this weekend and finished second overall female at the Vancouver Marathon in Vancouver, British Columbia, and just had an unbelievable race, especially given her less than perfect preparation. She was not intending to run the marathon at all. In fact, the half was always her plan until she decided to make a switch just a few weeks ago and then showed up, ran essentially on her own for 30, 35K, and then, and then ran down second place to move into second and then almost ran down first place. No, she actually did run her down from what... Right, she ran her down and me. then got out-sprinted at the end and yes. finished second, but, but, but had a PR by about 18 seconds to finish in 239.41. And just an amazing, gutsy race from Allison. She never ceases to amaze and inspire me. From a coach's perspective, Steve, what'd you think? You know, uh, we had a plan of attack to go out a little conservatively for the first 5K, see how the race went, and then to be ready to put a big push in somewhere around the 15 to 20K to see if, if the race was going to go. We didn't really know exactly who was going to show up. There were supposed to be Kenyans to show up, um, but they all didn't get their visas in time or had some visa issues. So that's when Allison decided to switch to the half when she saw there was an opportunity um to have a bigger financial payday, which is a key consideration for post-collegiate athletes who are trying to find ways to fund their training. Um, but also, so we didn't really know exactly, we knew there were some fast girls in it, but we didn't know how the race was gonna play out. So our plan was to go out conservatively and then be aggressive in the middle. It turned out that the first two went off like jackrabbits, got out pretty far ahead, and Allison was forced to kind of run by herself and really had kind of, in a sense, conceded after about 20K that she didn't know if she was gonna be able to catch anybody. Um, but she said that about 25K, she started noticing that there were coming back to her, and then she did some big pushes to try to make close the gap on second, which she did effectively. Got away from her pretty substantially and then didn't catch the leader until just, as she said, about 300 meters from the finish. Caught her, but the leader was able to make another push and, and, and just nipped her at the line. Uh, so, you know, a little disappointing in the fact that you, you do all that work and all of a sudden go... They get second place when you were in the lead for a short window, but if you consider what she was actually able to accomplish through the first 35K of, of staying to her, staying with her plan and, and trying to do the best she could to make the most out of the race effort, um, and then to get a PR out of it to boot, just goes to show how tough Allison actually is. I was saying this to, to a person recently that um, I don't think I've ever had an athlete who's more mentally tough than Allison Max's. Um, and I've worked with a lot of athletes, but that's a human being who, once she sets her mind on, on a task, um, she will see it through with the best of her ability. So kudos to Allison for such a great race. 
very happy for her to um, have gotten a nice payday. And I would have loved for her to get to get a win. I know that she's been second place at a variety of different distances at that uh, Vancouver Marathon now. I think she's gone for the last five years or so, and she always ends up second place. Second in either in the half or the full. But, but great great racing by her and um, you know you mentioned the fact that she had less than optimal training going into it but Allison's training you know I've said this recently somebody asked me they wanted to start doing the Allison training plan and I'm like Allison is an N of one there's only one Allison out there she, she, she literally cannot be her training methodology usually focuses much more on listening to her own body, following the leads that, that her, her work schedule is able to give her. And then in about, and usually in the last four to six weeks, we're able to get back together and really make fashion a plan for a race plan. Um, you know, she had some indicators going into this. She did a 5K workout that indicated she was in absolute 5K PR shape. So it was a little with some trepidation that we switched over to the marathon. Um, because I knew she was in really good half shape, but it ended up working out really well. And, you know, Allison is not somebody that anybody else should look at and say, hey, I want to utilize her training plan to get ready for a marathon or any other distance. But it does show you what volume can do. I mean, year-round, she's running significant volume as a part of her job with Rogue Expeditions, and then when she's here, she's regularly doing 100-mile weeks when she can on the road. So she has just... Fresh, Chris. You know, she stays fresh from a mental perspective in terms of going after racing, which is another argument that we haven't really talked much about, but we're probably going to do, if not its own episode, at least a partial episode on how to design your long-term planning for marathoning. And Allison, she runs sometimes one or two in a year, but she's always doing them at timing-wise that she feels good and she feels excited about racing again. So she's always going in with this sort of real strong push psychologically for knowing what she wants to get accomplished, which is a big difference than what's, you know, not, that's not always happening with everybody in their preparation for races. The other thing that's worth, worth mentioning is she won the Austin Marathon in February, came back to get second here, and, and obviously Austin wasn't, the same kind of race because of the conditions, but she uh, she's put together two pretty nice ones and both paydays in just a few months here, which also just shows her strength overall. Absolutely. So we're proud of you, Allison. Congrats again on that result. Always inspiring to see you race. We also had some other results across the board from some 5K, 10K action here in Austin at the Sunshine Run to some other races around the country you know that a lot of a lot of the good results for for team rogue athletes for the athletes that you coach as well as others within our rogue community and it just kind of goes to show you that sometimes it's just about having a magical weekend versus you know in boston we had some more people that were disappointed about their results but it seemed like for the most part this weekend we had lots of good results across the board how do you look at that from a coaching standpoint Steve, seeing, you know, changes like that from one week into the next? Well, you know, it's, I think that coaching is such a difficult, um, if you care for the results that your athletes achieve, which only good coaches do that, but it, it can be a really big roller coaster ride. You know, after Boston, I couldn't hide how disappointed I was with the results that our athletes got. Not that I blamed our athletes. You know, my first step is always to take full responsibility myself and try to figure out what I did that, that, that maybe affected their, their last run-up into, into the race itself, and then look at some of the psychological processes of did I, do, did I not get them ready physically, did I not get them ready mentally. So to have a couple of weeks later 
um, multiple repeat marathon and shorter distance um, successes really does sort of make you take a deep breath and be grateful that um, that luckily we, we don't have all of our results happening on one given day and that we've got the ability to, to see how a training cycle plays out over a wide variety of different races. Um, you know, weather again in the marathon is just an indisputable um, factor. And if we're running into weather conditions that are above the temperature of 60 degrees, then we're going to have to start to make adjustments. Um, and Boston played that out. Um, I had athlete, a, an athlete run in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, who had a phenomenal result. I had an athlete run up in Seattle, in, uh, in Vancouver, uh, not just Allison, but another athlete um, who got her BQ for the first time up in up in, up there. And you know, they had 45 degree temperatures, um, I think, from start to finish of that weather, um, um, the weather that day. So. You know, you just have to take the long view. And, you know, while I do like to score my racing and see how my athletes produce in terms of performances, you sometimes want to just put an asterisk beside a day where it's 70 degrees at the start. You yes, know? absolutely. So, you know, it's, uh, you got to take the long view of these things. Cut yourself some slack. Yeah. So congrats to all who raced this past weekend. We see you and are very proud. Now, switching gears a little bit, wanted to talk about Peyton Jordan the meet that happened this past weekend at Stanford. We had mentioned it on our last episode with John talked about Sarah, Sarah Sutherland, who used to be one of your athletes now training with Mark, Mark Wetmore in Boulder. So would love to do a quick recap. I know we had her result. We had a few others. How did Sarah do? First of all, Steve. Yeah, well, she was, I texted her right before her race after we had talked about it. And, you know, I, I asked her what she was shooting for. She was a little cagey on what she was trying to accomplish, but I know that she was trying to run faster. 1550 that she ran when she was running with me collegiately at Texas. I knew she was going to run much better than that. She ended up getting 10th and running 1526, which is, you know, a 24 second PR is nothing to, 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 uh, to really say much about. It's a pretty, pretty, pretty stellar result. Her race, I didn't get to watch it um, as I was traveling, but I did notice based on race results that the girl who won, um, who ran basically a 62-second last quarter at the end of her run, 1513, which is smoking fast for the last uh, 5K. So I think Sarah, looking at who she raced against and who, um, and, and and how the race res- race results were for the people around her, I'm, I'm pretty sure she'll be pretty happy with that. Um, That's a big you know, PR. The other things we, go ahead, sorry. Chris. It's a big PR. Yeah, big PR. You, and, and I know her training has been geared towards 1500, um, and so I was, I was, curious as to whether she was in 5k shape but then i remembered she's being coached by mark wetmore so they're always ready for uh, a race distances of, of a wide variety <laughs> because that's how they're training so <laughs> so you had sarah's results uh, a couple others worth mentioning first of all we've got to talk about gabe grunwald gabrielle grunwald is her full name she is now battling cancer for the third time and has decided to try to race and train through it even though she's undergoing treatment for cancer and the prognosis really at this point is unknown. She showed up at Peyton Jordan to run the 1500 and and ran it in 420, which wasn't in that A section. She was in the A section, so the fastest heat, which wasn't at least impressive, at least where she finished in that heat. But, man, to do it and to kind of keep training through the battles that she's facing off the track, it's just really inspiring. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to think that a human would want to continue to put themselves in harm's way like that from a racing perspective. But 
then you also have to look at the flip side of it, which is that this is part, this is her job, and this is her lifestyle, and this is what she loves to do. And uh, and uh, in some sense, you, yeah, I just have so much more respect for her from looking at it from that longer view. Um, I'm sure that she walks away from a race result like that unhappy um, because she doesn't. Well, she wants to produce and, and perform at the very highest, but I think she's probably in a space now where. Um, you know, continuing to test herself as an important a part of who she is as a human being as it is to how she is as an athlete, you know? Yes, and there's a great blog that she wrote about her journey, which we'll share in the show notes for this one, so definitely check that out. Other results worth mentioning, Matt Centrowitz, gold medalist in the 1500 at Rio, got beat in the 5K, which was... You know, maybe not too big of a surprise. I'm sure he was using it potentially as a training effort versus an all-out race. But that was an interesting result. Any others worth mentioning, Steve? Well, for sure, Justin Knight, a collegiate runs for the for, uh, for um, Syracuse University, who has been um, a force to be reckoned with over the last few years. Um, but he's always been having to run, play second fiddle or third fiddle or fourth fiddle, whatever the case may be in terms of the race results, to... Um, Ches the Great, where we're talking about Edward Chesarek, who runs for the University of Oregon, who is um, a phenomenal runner and has won so many national titles, it's too hard to even count them all. But um, Justin was able to outkick uh, Chesarek, which is a huge result for those who follow the collegiate ranks. Um, not necessarily as telling, given the, where each of them might have been in their training um, for the race, but um, you know, everyone considers uh, Chesarek to be unbeatable, but he's now shown that he is beatable. So how that will play out to the NCAA championships will be interesting to play, watch. Um, you know, talking about um, Centro's race effort, I think he's probably one of those guys that Alberto has a hard time getting in really good, solid 5K training. So he obviously puts him into 5K races occasionally to be sure that he gets his 5K work in. I think that might be what's going on there. <laughs> right. Um, so and this I guess was if a training gold effort. Medal, you pretty much have no issue whatsoever worrying about where your actual placement is in other races. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But lots of interesting things there, and we'll continue to follow the tr- summer track season and keep you posted on what's to come there and of course we have to finish this kind of intro talking about the big breaking two effort with nike this past weekend i know a lot of people were glued on friday night really late into the early morning on saturday watching that result and we've talked about it a little bit on here but i wanted to kind of get a get a full debrief now ultimately kipchoge eliud kipchoge ran two hours and 25 seconds missing that sub two mark by less than a second per mile and in spite of all my cynicism i i must say i I walked away impressed with him and we'll we'll digest that in a bit in a second but before i do that i wanted to read a quote from a deadspin article on kipchoge's effort which i think perfectly kind of captures my sentiments of it now that i've had a chance to digest it a little bit so i'm gonna read that here and then we'll talk about it so they said it was the kipchoge show The commentators blathered endlessly about Nike science, but that all went out the window the minute the camera focused on Kipchoge. Nike's gimmickry did little for the other two unfortunates, which was driven home like a knife with every velvet step Kipchoge took. Flying on after 30K faster than any human had ever run, it was increasingly clear that this part, going over the wall where the strain on mind and body must have been excruciating, this was about one extraordinary athlete. The shoes, all that, had fallen away. Useless, silly, 
what was happening was not Nike made and had very little retail potential. It cannot be reproduced on others. Through no doubt, unin- though no doubt unintended, Nike produced a two-hour opus by Kipchoge on Kipchoge, and it was lovely. And so to me, that perfectly captures it. And as I said, I'm a, skinic, a cynic, so I, you know, I kind of believe that maybe Kipchoge's on EPO in order to run that fast. But regardless of whether he's on drugs or not, I don't really care because, frankly, it's obvious that he's head and shoulders above the rest of the world, it, showing it not only by by <laughs> leaving those other poor souls in his dust on Friday night, but also just by the effortless with which he did what he did. And he ultimately got much closer to the two-hour mark than I ever thought possible. I made the prediction texting with a friend earlier on Friday that he would run 202. Ended up, gosh, darn near running sub dude, missing it by just a second per mile. And held it almost, you know, just past 20 miles. You know, was on pace and so really only lost a few seconds, you know, per mile in, in the final 10K. And did it in a way that that was just beautifully executed. Um, so my hat comes off, you know, to Kipchoge in spite of all my cynicism. And I think Deadspin kind of perfectly captured how I feel about it, which is that, you know, he sort of took the circus that was the Nike PR engine, set that aside and let you just kind of focus on the beauty that was his effort, which to me, you know, is certainly worth celebrating and being and, and commending. What do you think? What's your take, Steve? Well, I agree with with all of that. I also think that um, one of the really cool things was the, the just his post race demeanor and attitude were such that immense amount of respect I have for Ilya Kipchoge. His humility after the race was over. You know, he could easily have been beating his chest and saying, "Look, I'm the greatest that ever was, that ever will be." But the main quote that comes out of it is him saying, "Now other people will see that this is potentially possible." Like that's so, so, so humble. You know, yeah. it's like it's not about me. It's about what I was. It's about this thing that we chased. And yeah, we we set up a, a sort of a fool's errand in terms of the way that it was designed. And people will continuously argue, was the truck car in front causing so much of a windbreak? And did this thing happen and that thing happen? And yeah, those are those are crucial pieces that will will fall out over the next coming weeks and months as they as we digest this race result but digesting the imagine the amazing result that he put out there the human just the absolute beautiful human performance that we were able to witness on friday night and then his his takeaway is i just set the barrier for others to see that i just set something up for some futures to come to get maybe he'll go after it maybe others will but for him it was more about this is what the human is capable of. Let's not limit ourselves. Let's think about what we can do. Um, instead of it being the Kipchoge show, it was the way that Deadspin, or that you, that you quote, it was his show, but he certainly wasn't saying, look at me. He was saying, look at what we can do. And to me, that's, that is another area where, where I do think Kipchoge has proven, and no one can deny the fact that he is the consummate professional and, and, and the consummate and an incredible an incredible human being to go with being this, the best marathoner in the world. And I'm, I'm sorry, but no one will ever be able to convince me that today, at this point right now, Billy Kipchoge is the greatest marathoner of all time. I will still not concede that I, I'm still arguing maybe the argument that he's the greatest athlete of all time, mm-hmm. or the greatest runner of all time, but I can definitely say he's the greatest marathoner of all time. For sure. I mean, <laughs> he's won seven out of his eight major marathon races, plus 
the Olympics, and then now to do this. And to your point about his class in finishing, you know, he kept jogging through the finish straight to his coach's arms and and was giving him a hug and sort of congratulating him as well on the effort. So he realized that it wasn't just about him. And, you know, what can you say? <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, my- there also, just as an aside, there's a, there is a Texas, Central Texas-Austin connection with um, Billy Kachogi. His coach, Patrick Sang, was a steeplechaser at the University of Texas um, in the late 80s. He, he, I never got the chance to run with Patrick Sang. He was a, uh, he graduated, I think, in 86 or 87, and I didn't get to the university's campus until 1988. But um, there is a little Austin connection there with uh with uh, Patrick Sang being the coach of hmm. Ilit Kachoki. <laughs> I did not know that. I just learned something new. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, the questions now become okay, what does this mean for the ability for someone to do this in a real race that would be sanctioned for a world record by the IAAF? Some people are speculating that he might now turn and look towards Berlin as a potential race to go get the actual world record in a sanctioned way. But, you know, the questions become, you know, what all the little pieces meant for his results. One thing I did see was an article that was posted by Ross Tucker from the Science of Sport, who, who estimated that the drafting element from the car, as well as from the many pacers he had around him, might have accounted for about two minutes of that result. And, of course, others are speculating different pieces from the shoes and everything else. You know, one thing that I think is worth mentioning, too, is that as I saw a, a recap from one of the Nike scientists who was involved, he talked about how the humidity was a little higher than they wanted. It was 53 degrees Fahrenheit, but it was about 80% humidity. And so they had wanted something closer to 65, 70%. And we, as, as somebody who runs in Austin, we know how humidity can affect a runner. <laughs> And so if it was 53 degrees and 80% humidity for me on marathon day, I would take it, but I would also maybe want it to be slightly cooler and slightly yes, less humid. So given the fact that he was so close to this effort, even with slightly less than ideal weather conditions, I think makes it more impressive. But we'll see. We'll see what's next for him. I do think, as he said, you know, this has sort of set a new bar for people. Yeah, and, and I think we're definitely going to see a world record attempt. That with, when he sets when he sets the world record, he will be the greatest of all time. P- people will not be able to argue because that's the only thing missing currently from his resume, right? Is the world record. So yep. um, I think that that's going to happen. You know, my speculation at this point is I think I think one hundred two thirty is probably about where you're looking at in terms of what's possible in other circumstances, given a given major. What happens in major marathoning, major marathons, and if he chooses, let's say Berlin, maybe he could get down to the two hundred two range. For me, getting under two hundred two would be would be would be absolutely shocking. But um, again, I thought I was also a naysayer. I didn't think two hours and twenty six minutes, twenty six seconds, or whatever it was that he ran was in the realm of possibility. So when it comes to Ilya Kipchoge, I'll just shut my mouth and let him do the run. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let him prove us wrong at every turn. So, again, hats off to Kipchoge and, you know, in some small way, hats off to Nike for putting this out there, for putting this opportunity out there. I definitely, you know, could do without some of the the fanfare and PR engine that they bring, but they did 
set the stage for what ultimately was an amazing result. So, hat well, tip you know, to all of that. Thing, Chris, we all thought we all thought that that was just a fool's errand, you know, and they knew more than we did too. You know, sure. hats off to them for that, knowing sure. that they're athlete, that they had an athlete that had a shot at it, and that they had um, that they that they we're going to be able to get the kind of conditions that would make something like that possible. Because I know the rest of the people, almost everyone else in the rest of the world thought it was, it was nigh on impossible to get even under 201. So, right. um, amazing. And one footnote I must say, though, for the, for the person listening who might be a more casual fan, is that this was amazing, but it is not all about time. As John said in our first part of his conversation, the racing is also beautiful, and so if you're watching a race like New York or Boston and they're running 208-209, that can also still be amazing in its own way because of the competition element. So, you know, just remember, it's not all, all about time. There can be beauty in both. And with that segue, I will take us into our part two with the discussion, Coffee and Beer with John Shrupp. This one we continue talking about training and then also get into running footwear and then recap with or finish with an interesting discussion on generalists versus specialists that Steve's bring to us. So here we go, talking more with John Shrupp. So another training question I wanted to cover because it was interesting when, when you were my coach, which is that I think I did more variations on fart licks with you than I, I've ever done. We would do 10 mile or 12 mile loops and you would lay out on the board four or five different variations on fart licks for <laughs> different people, depending on what they were training for, when their race was. And, and we used to do that all the time. A lot of people, frankly, didn't like it. No, they didn't. Because they didn't like this idea of not having a set interval distance wise. But I actually liked it because it put me really in tune with my body and helped me really understand the idea of running by feel. So talk about the fart lick and why you were such a fan of it as a tool in training. I like it um, partly for the historical aspect of it, um, partly because it's, um, as a coach, it's maybe a little bit easier to manage than having to like keep clocks, keep three or four clocks running simultaneously. Um, but primarily it's, it allows you more focus on your internal instruments, um, how you feel and for the marathon, that rhythm, how you feel, you know, you can feel, um, you know, one of the beautiful things about the marathon is you can feel really, really good. And then a mile later, you're like, there's no way I'm going to get to the finish. And then a mile later you feel good again. And you have to be able to manage the, the feedback that your body gives you. And running fart like the way we did it was, I think, just a really, really good tool. Part of it was logistics because, you know, I, I had no idea you know, where you guys were on a loop, but I knew that we we're in the third five-minute <laughs> segment, so you were running fast or whatever. But um, it's, it's just running by feel which was another Lydiard principle um, that it, you know, so many people are beholden to their Garmin. Like one of the s stories that, which is now one of the myths I tell is that we were at the track over on the east side one time and a w woman said, I can't do the workout because my Garmin isn't charged. 
And I thought, well, one, we're on the track, so you know that give or take the distance <laughs> is going to be, you know. And, you know, so part of it was you had, you know, I think to really develop yourself as a runner, you've got to run by feel. You've got to know, you know, I, there are stories that like when Frank Shorter was running quarters, he could give you within a tenth of a second how fast he ran. And I don't think many people could do that nowadays. Um, I mean, I certainly can't, but um, I think that's really important to know that um, at this rhythm, at this level of discomfort, I'm running this pace or whatever. Well, here's a great logistical question, one I repeat frequently. I'm interested to get your take on it. How often does an athlete run marathon goal pace in a marathon? I mean, what we call MGP in oh. our parlance. So two things, that question is, how often do they hit it? And number two, what even is MGP? And is it physiologically an appropriate focal point? I think if you're racing the marathon, there comes a point in the training in the last, I don't know, month, month and a half or two months, where you have to practice. It's not the pace necessarily, but the rhythm. And it doesn't need to be exactly six minutes pace or whatever but you need to be within the same range, a, a similar range on either side, so you have the rhythm down. Physiologically, marathon pace for most people, and this is for the layman, maybe not necessarily for people who are running two hours or two hours and 20, um, What the high end of your aerobic pace would be 80%. Mm-hmm. And I think marathon is a little more than that. So it's there. there is a connection physiologically. When you, you mean by more, do you mean faster fa- or slower? I'm, I'm sorry, faster. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that hitting marathon pace is in and of itself beneficial other than getting the rhythm down, pra- preparing you mentally for whatever you're going to do on race day. Yeah, but it looks sexy on Strava. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. John yeah. just to have us do a fart lick, which I th- is still in the lore of Team Rogue for those old, fo- old, older Team Rogue athletes, which was the 10-5 fart lick. We would do 10 minutes at half marathon pace, al- alternating with five minutes at marathon pace times four or five sets. Yeah, for like an hour. And there was no break, just continuous in and out of half marathon and marathon pace. And 10 minutes and a half is pretty, you know, it gets you tired and it forces you also to recover at marathon pace. But I think that would still be, for some of the athletes I can think of in my head, they're either their hardest workout that they've ever done for Team Rogue or maybe even their favorite, depending on the masochist in them. Well, it was, for me as the sadist, it was, <laughs> it was, it was you know, it was fun to watch. And that's one of those, that's one of those workouts where they go, the athlete goes to a dark place. And all, and but it's only for an hour or an hour and fifteen, so it's not, it's not really really hard. But I remember people coming out of it and just walking up to me and like, that was stupid, <laughs> that was stupid. And then of course, the next day they're like, that was awesome. <laughs> but that you only do something like that once or twice in a cycle because other than that you don't. It costs a lot. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. And that's you know the first rule is do no harm as a coach Mm -hmm. so you don't want to prescribe workouts just to see how bad you can make someone hurt um 
but there you have to at almost all levels you have to make them hurt a little bit so that they're prepared for it on race day i have one more training related question i frequently get not only do i turn myself inside out about the ethics of the thing that i'm going to ask you but also just sort of am i putting my athletes in harm way harm's way as you said but how often um did you lie to your athletes some athletes got lied to on a daily basis (laughs) and then some you don't have to but there are times when you have to you don't want to tell someone they're ready to do something when they're absolutely not because invariably you end up with a disaster and that's but um sometimes you need to reassure them that everything is going to be okay when maybe in the back of your mind you're not so sure everything's going to be okay and i don't want to say you just outright lie to them but you have to you have to blur the lines of truth in order to get if 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 they call me a liar if if achieving the goal is what everybody has agreed upon you can't there are times when you sort of have to blur the lines well i have a confession to make on this point specifically which is that sometimes when i want my athletes to do their repeats in half marathon pace i will tell them to do it in marathon pace knowing that they're probably going to go too fast and do it at half marathon pace anyway depending on where we are in the cycle so that i think of that uh, as semantics (laughs) (laughs) so that on paper is a lie right and some people know this about me in my group have been around long enough and so they're they're kind of keen to it anyway but it is an interesting ethical question. Where do you fall on it, Steve? Well, I've coached athletes at every level. And um, I, coached I coached collegiately for seven years. And in that window, I coached post-collegiately for about five or six years. And I found that lying to those athletes was exceedingly difficult. And, and not because they were so hip to what we were doing and what we were trying to get accomplished, but because we were already really closely on the edge as Lydiard and or, I think, Many people don't recognize Jack Daniels, who many of the books out there, the most people are following some form of Jack Daniels system. And if you're self-coach and you want somebody to be your head, your coach, but you don't have somebody, Jack Daniels is a good pick. But so many people were right on the edge of what they were trying to get accomplished that lying to them did not serve too many of not too many benefits. But one of my expect my I started Team Rogue, you know, 15, 12 years ago, and I told the truth all the time and. And I made really hard workouts and people succeeded at them occasionally, um, failed at them more frequently, and were overtrained nearly to the, to the person, right? And then when I came back to Team Rogue later, I started lying to them because I began to realize that they were capable of so much more than I even knew. And when I asked them to do things that were so far beyond what I could articulate to them later about what was reasonable and doable and manageable that the the response I got and the result I got was a game changer not psychologically. And it made such a big difference that in my opinion at that point, That's a really good the point. ends justified the means. That they were suddenly, they got done with something. And I wouldn't tell them that occasionally, I did some, so people who have been coached by me for a while know, occasionally I'll tell an athlete when I don't think they're going to be able to achieve a goal just because I'm trying to get under their skin and see if they'll do it. And a lot of times they do. But if I know an athlete I, is not necessarily going to be capable of finishing the workout that I've got at the paces that, I deci- that I've decided, I don't tell them. So that afterwards, I 
can articulate to them what a surprise that was. And I don't think I would have been able to do that when I coached athletes who are right on the very edge of what they're physiologically capable of. But the athletes that most of listeners of this podcast, you're not even close to what you're capable of. You're not even near what your physiological capabilities are. And so occasionally when a coach lies to you to prove to you that you're not there yet, um, not only was it incredibly invigorating, exciting, and motivating to me, but my athletes, if I could articulate it correctly and give them the context of it appropriately so they could post-op that workout and say, holy shit, I just did that, then it was it, that one day could have been the most important training pro, training workout we did the entire cycle and in some cases maybe the entire time i worked with an athlete because it was a game changer so you're withholding information (laughs) you're not telling them everything that's going through your head but you're not saying i would never tell any athlete everything that's going through my head (laughs) or they would be so (laughs) desperately discouraged that they would never even want to be coached by me but many of them know that and they know that there's a high bar to there's a high bar to to hit in order to be able to to quote unquote please me I am I am no athlete could could irrevocably please or displease please me after my post collegiate experience believe me no athlete that I coach can <laughs> disappoint me or hurt me right that way but I do think that 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 withholding slash lying created um, a result that would never have been able to be accomplished if I wasn't able wasn't willing to push them beyond what we might have called the pale would you agree or disagree with this statement would you ever put yourself put your athletes in a situation that you didn't think they could handle give you a workout a specific yeah. would you give an athlete a workout that you I, didn't I, think I, they could handle? i think that was exactly what i'm saying right now is i've done that you've done it and they've succeeded i've done it with the right population of people um if you do it and you do it appropriately, it's an absolute game changer to the point where in one session, I knew I, in one session I got so much more out of it from a psychological and sort of personal power standpoint from that athlete or that group of athletes that it was worth the risk of overtraining them. Um, but, you, but you believed they could do the workout. No. You didn't. No, sometimes I just literally give them crazy stuff just to see what happens now not crazy stuff so i don't <laughs> yeah, want well, to make it right, seem right. like it's i'm writing random. i'm writing random. like the once it's a runner random. 60 <laughs> times like 20 times 400 and then another 20 times 400 and wait guess just by the way there's another 20 times 400 no <laughs> yeah. not that standpoint but just that the paces that i was asking them to run so maybe i would have written this workout for a post-collegiate or a collegiate athlete for them let's just to say six times a mile at a certain pace and I would not ever ask an athlete to run faster than 10K pace for six times a mile because that's that's a lot to do. That's a lot to ask. And on occasion, I asked my team rogue people to do six times a mile at 5K. Now, they never, I never articulated it that it was six times a mile by 5K because everybody I coach is smart, right? But I would just couch it either in a fartlek or in some other kind of way where I thought there's no way they could accomplish this. And it wasn't just a test. I wasn't just, you know, being a, a cruel SS, you know, <laughs> manipulator of the human taxonomy and human spirit. But I was questioning whether how close we are to what that average athlete or what that adult athlete is capable of. And what I found is they're all sandbaggers. <laughs> They're all capable of so much more than they knew. And the only and I had to keep honest with myself about 
what the human body was capable of. And they shocked me to the point where I began to believe in magic. And I truly think that while I've articulated this idea of magic, and this is not, again, if anybody that's listened to our podcast, I'm not talking about sleight of hand, pull a rabbit out of a hat. I'm talking about the things where the human spirit can do things that no one expected them to do because an athlete shouldn't be able to run six times a mile at 5K pace. Not only were they physiologically capable of it, which I probably thought of, they were more than psychologically capable of it. And if I could appropriately tell them what they had just accomplished, which honestly was about successful about 15% of the time, that I would have an athlete that would never leave my side and that what I could ask to do damn near anything under any circumstance. And I would know on race day, they were blood, like they were going to get it done. That's a, that's, I've never experienced that kind of approach with any other athlete population I've ever worked with other than my adult population. I don't abuse that, right? And I don't lie that frequently, but I do when I'm at my wits end or when I'm wondering about the capability of the human spirit and that group on a consistent basis. And that's 99% of our listening populace right now. I'm talking to you. You're capable of so much more. Please don't write into your schedule six times a mile at 5K <laughs> pace. This was just a this was just an exercise. But my point I'm trying to make is I lie, and I lie on purpose because magic is there that you have no idea is there. And until we test the limits, we don't know where they are. It's fascinating to me because it also highlights the complexity of the things that are going through your mind as a coach or my mind as a coach in writing a workout. Sometimes I do that. Well, write a workout. It usually, for me, comes down to the rest intervals. And I'll think, man, God, maybe that's a little too tight. Like, I like to have my athletes do 800s with 90 seconds rest. Mm-hmm. Especially if we're in, the, like, the later parts of a strength phase. So when you say 800s at 90 seconds rest, what's your, what's your race pace? What's the, what's the pace you're asking so, them to run for that? So that? usually I have them do 8 by 800, sometimes 10, but say mostly 8 by 800 two at half marathon pace, two at 10K, and then four at 5K mm-hmm. pace, and with 90 seconds rest between all of them. And every time I write that workout down in my emails to my athlete, I always think, gosh, I don't know if they're going to, like, that's just not maybe not enough rest. Cause a lot like of you should we, cheat it later, right? Yeah, a lot of times when we do it, we do yes. two minutes rest. Correct. Sometimes more. And or sometimes I'll say, as you go along, appropriately adjust right, your adjust, rest. Yeah. Right. And so I'll put it down knowing that that might come up where somebody's like, oh, you know, or, or I'll see them really struggling and I'll just tell them, take a little bit more. But then most of the time it doesn't. They do it. <laughs> it's a shock, isn't it? <laughs> so it's it's funny to see how that plays out. John, any thoughts on this rambling? Yeah, well, Steve no, I? It's, it's something I think about all the time. And I, I approach it a little more conservatively because I never coached at the collegiate level. And I never coached Olympians. So you're... With those athletes, you're more frequently watching things happen that, you know, someone like myself who's coaching, you know, people who are trying to have BQs or whatever, there, it's just a different, it's almost a different sport in a lot of ways. So um, you've seen things that I haven't seen. And so I come from a, a little more conservative approach, but I'm still looking for those moments of magic where people, realize their realize their own innate ability that for whatever reason hasn't hasn't been part of their vocabulary i think one other thing that's important to talk about this with part of the reason why i can also get away with pulling this trick is that we don't race very often 
And so we are, we're not presented with many of my athletes. I would say the lion's share of 85, 90% are, are targeting a marathon and the number of variables that are crucial and critical to having a great race performance or a command performance are such that, um, to give them too many races beforehand is to risk peaking too early, putting too big of an effort in a, in a, in a case because they got a number bit, bit pinned to their chest. And so I've got this narrow window to sort of simulate race kinds of efforts and results in order to get my athlete prepared for it. And honestly, to get me ready for that one-on-one meeting I'm about to have with them a week before the race, that I'm not blowing smoke up their rear end telling them that they can achieve this goal that they have. And I can't tell based on the kind of work we do if you just write strict fundamental marathon training protocol because they're completely they're not going into that that anaerobic system or what we call that economy system enough to be able to tell what's going to be actually happening over the course of that last five miles or three miles or four miles we know physiologically what's going to happen but a michael weedle who you coached for a while is going to deal with that incredibly differently than say a rachel joseph who you coached for a while they're different athletes with different scenarios with different conditions who are going to respond differently to different work even if they both might not they may or may not get it pulled out well pull the rabbit out of the hat at the last minute you needed to know in order right. to, because you were to give them a different race plan or a different way to approach the exact same race on the exact same day. And what we're trying to do is really do the best we can for our athlete. Yeah, you can't interpret from just from training. It's hard to interpret how they're going to deal when you know when the going gets tough. Everybody's going to deal with it differently, and if you haven't had any sort of preparation to give you feedback about how they're going to deal with it. There's no, you know, there's no way to know, and well, you're not, you're not doing anybody a, a service. The good thing is we've got an episode coming up that we've got on our plan for the coach-athlete relationship. Yes, and looking forward like to that one. This one may, this topic may come up again, but I want to switch gears because we're approaching the two-hour window here for a couple of episodes if we split this in half. But I want to talk about shoes. As I said at the beginning, you taught me everything I know about footwear. You really invented or developed the rogue training rogue shoe fitting philosophy it's really all founded on your thinking and i want to highlight a couple of those things and then come back to a question i have about where footwear is going today on the fitting philosophy side there's two things that you really brought to rogue's fitting philosophy that i i wholeheartedly believe in one is that the shoe has to fit naturally. It has to disappear on the foot. And that's more important than reading any biomechanical or functional view of what the foot needs. That's point one. The second was this idea of you want to put somebody in the least amount of shoe that they're comfortable in, meaning right. the lightest weight. Not necessarily barefoot or crazy, but you know, for that person, the right. least amount of shoe you can give them. Talk about those two principles. Where did you develop them where did it come for you and how has it evolved over time it evolved ultimately because i think well it, you know, for a long time as as the running shoe industry evolved it was all about technology and you couldn't sell a shoe that didn't have a technology right nike started that with air and it went from there and Ultimately, it got to a point where there was a bunch of stuff in shoes that just simply didn't matter. They were marketing. Marketing. And having been um, around running specialty shops and working for shoe companies and 
talking with people who develop footwear, there's and there's a lot of stuff in shoes that comes out of, you know, out of the marketing department, and not so much out of the science side of it. Um, so it, there's there's that um, to to sort of call the things that are not necessary. You do that with training. You do that with, you know, your general. You know, that's just sort of my general philosophy. If if it's not absolutely necessary, then it's probably absolutely necessary not to have it. <laughs> um, the other part is like listening to what what has been said uh, like if you if all of the if all of the information we get about fitting footwear can be sort of coagulated it's all about fit and feel and no matter what your tool whether you're uh you know a carpenter or a painter or whatever if whatever you're using if you're aware of it it's probably not helping you as much um uh a cyclist needs to be fit to her bicycle appropriately. Um, if you are, you know, if you're building a house and swinging a hammer and the hammer's too heavy, it's not doing you any good. What, you know, you can come up with any number of ideas. But um, if you're aware of the shoe when you're running, it's probably not doing its job for you. For some people, it's going to be, you know, a 10-ounce big fat cushion shoe. And for some people, it's going to be something a little bit less. It's up to the individual. The extension of that is that I want it to be more about the runner than the shoe. You know, when we first started, like back in the 90s at Runtex, mm-hmm. um, it, we used to always say, you know, the only thing you need to go for a run is a good pair of shoes. And at some point, that sort of disappeared. And me being the guy who's standing in the yard telling the kids to get off their, you know, get off my lawn, whatever, it it's more about the runner. Mm-hmm. It's more about the athlete and the person and the individual. And l- so I want, I don't want someone to say, you know what? I, I, I didn't have the right shoes. That's why I didn't perform. I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do the workout because I didn't have my, my racing flats. You know what? Th- and one of the stories I tell people all the time is you going out wearing boots and cargo shorts <laughs> and running a sub 60 quarter yeah because you could <laughs> yeah and like you don't need all this stuff and the stuff is cool and it's fun and it gets you excited but in the end this is about what you're going to deliver and not what the shoes are and so it's sort of you know i don't want to say it's like um a minimalist theme where you know we're talking barefoot running or anything like that but it's in in most cases it's stuff you don't need and I'd rather you, you know, show up and say, oh, I did this workout and all I had was my trail shoes, but I still did it. Right. Or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's the tool can't outweigh what you bring to the, the workout or whatever. So Plus, you have to trust your body. I always say when fitting someone, your feet don't lie. Right. So if you listen to that intuitive feeling that's telling you, that one shoe is better than the other. It right. probably is. Yeah. Yeah. It's your, you know, I, I, a lot of, it's the same thing where you don't, you need to learn to run by feel and you know, your Garmin can be helpful, but ultimately you need to run by f- feel and it's the same sort of thing. You've got, you know, your shoes are cool and they're nice and flashy and trendy, but you, you know, 
this is what you've got to do. And your body is a much better measure of what is going to work for you than anybody who's fitting a pair of shoes. So a couple of things. One is that at the time Rogue started its retail business, 2008, that was the very beginning of the barefoot movement. Very beginning. I guess it probably came really a couple years after that that it started hitting yep. in force where you had the Vibrams and all the crazy toe shoes going rampant. That was certainly a fad. and A lot of people got hurt wearing barefoot shoes. But one thing it did do for the industry was it forced everything to get lighter from the average moderately cushioned shoe like a Brooks Ghost, for example. All of those shoes started losing ounces as a result of this movement. It kind of became the 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 characteristic that stayed, even though barefoot running has sort of gone away again. Talk about that. And then now we're swinging sort of back the other way with these maximalist shoes. How has that evolved? And what excites you about the current footwear development world, if anything? Well, even with the the bigger cushion shoes, one of the things that that sort of minimalist movement did was, like you said, it took ounces out of the shoes and it reduced the amount of quote unquote technologies that people were putting in shoes. Um, Even, you know, uh, a shoe with, you know, 35 millimeter stacks is still going to weigh nine ounces or whatever. Much lighter, right? Much, much lighter. Um, The things I see most now, uh, aside from this new Nike shoe with the lever in it um, that they're going to use Friday night in the two hour thing, is that shoes are, you know, with knits, um, with um, security systems, the way you tie the shoes down, it's the shoes are more likely now to disappear on your foot than they ever have been. Um, you, you know, they, the new materials are more durable, so they feel good longer. Um, they're like right now there are probably at least from, uh, you know, in the shoes I run in, there are three or four shoes that I can, I can put on without in the dark, without having to know what shoes I'm putting on and go out and do any run I want. And they're going to be fine. Um, other companies, make shoes that you put them on and you forget you've got them on until it's time to take them off and that's that's one of the great things about the development in the last few years that a lot of people are making really really good shoes and the break-in periods are gone so you can throw on a pair out of the box and go run 10 miles and be okay yeah I know you're a Skechers rep and you have to give proper deference to the brand but we've also talked that yeah, you're, mention, you're willing to mention some other brands. What are some of your favorites right now? The, the disappear on yeah. your foot. Um, you know, I, I haven't run. I still go out and buy shoes from other companies because I want to f- see what's going on. And I run competitive them. intelligence. Yep. Um, and I wish I could find a way to expense that, but I can't. <laughs> um, I, there are a few shoes that I compare everything to that shoes, that, at least in the last 10 years that I, um, that are sort of the benchmarks. Um, the original Adidas Adios, well, the original Adidas Adios was a completely different shoe, and that was like right around 2000, I think, maybe a little earlier. Um, but the one that became famous because Gebra Selassie was wearing it um, was a shoe that um, I use as sort of a benchmark. Um, there was another. There was a similar shoe the, that's no longer available in the U.S. The Asics Tarther, 
And they were almost identical shoes. They were both developed in Japan. Gosh, that takes me back. I yeah. wish I had a pair of Tarthers. I, I, I do in my closet. <laughs> yeah. they, and they were both developed. He has a foot fetish. <laughs> That's what it is, a Japanese foot fetish. Yes. Both of those shoes were developed for the Japanese market originally. So they were similarly shaped. They had a similar feel, similar fit. The Asics was a little broader in the front. But they were both shoes that you, I mean, right out of the box. They were just like uh, butter. Like butter. Yeah. They're, yeah. And so those are shoes that I, no matter what I'm trying on, I always sort of use as a reference point. And so what c- compare? And I would, I would assume you'd throw the Brooks launch, the original Brooks launch yeah. in there. I liked that shoe because it felt like, like a, it was a, like a workhorse. You could, right. you could, you know, you could do anything in it. You do anything in it, whereas the Adios and the Tarther were a little lighter. Maybe, right. maybe you wouldn't necessarily do all your long runs in them. Right. So what compares today? Mm. You know, I, I haven't run in as many things. Um, New Balance has a couple things that are really, really nice. Um, uh, Adidas still has some stuff that are really, really nice. The new Boost stuff is a little different feel. Right. Um, it's to me, it doesn't have the same feel. Um, but I'm still, you know, in my head, you know, shoemaking stopped in a lot of ways with the with the original Adios and the Tarther. It, it didn't, but that's sort of what I think about. And then um, there are a couple shoes from On that I think are really, really nice. So, and honestly, we got to throw Skechers in there because the yep. Razor, the new Skechers right. Razor is close. Right. Um, the Razor is the, the shoe that we have that I think is most like that original Adios and the Tarther. Um, and... Um, I got some feedback from a bunch of athletes this week. I went down. We have a, a, a group that we're sponsoring in San Antonio with some Olympic trials athletes. And um, the feedback is really, really good, really positive. Um, I got to see in the last week pictures of the Razor for 2018. And it loses. it's like going to come in an ounce and a half lighter. Wow. And it's sort of slimmed down a little bit. Um, and it's, it's going to be it's going to be really, really cool. That has so, me interested. Yeah. yeah. So the one of the, the guy who develops our shoes, um, this guy called Kurt Stockbridge. He and I, you know, one of the reasons I got interested in the company is because talking to him and his philosophy sort of supported and everything that I'd always sort of thought. Like, you don't need to put stuff in shoes that doesn't actually help. Um, and so the stuff he makes tends to be uh, a little slimmer. Um, fewer bells and whistles um visible technologies are few and far between um it just they look you know except for contemporary colors and materials they're kind of old-fashioned shoes which i really like and a lot of people are skeptical of sketchers and i know you're a a sketchers rep so no one would necessarily believe you because you have to toe the party line but for us they're the real deal and people should pay attention to the brand because they're making good stuff you know, I've got a five-state territory, and you know, it, most of the shops I go to, they're like, "Yeah, I'd love to have a free pair of shoes, but I, I don't buy what you're selling," <laughs> and it's simply because of the brand, and that's it, uh, that's a little bit unfortunate because then people, you know, then that obviously the marketing becomes more important than the actual product, and that's a little silly. That's a little silly. Um, but you know, I'm certainly not going to judge people on it. That's that it's they're running a business and they've got to do what they've got to do. But 
Um, We're I've here to say go buy some yeah, Skechers, people. I think it's cool stuff. One final footwear question, and then we can kind of wrap to a close. There's a trend in foams, started with Adidas Boost, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, and has gone to Saucony Everrun, and Brooks has a new foam that's of this variety where they're super bouncy right, and responsive is sort of how you might describe it, right? but really soft. Yeah. Plush, almost like a mattress. Feels great stepping into it when you're buying a shoe in the store, but in our general philosophy aren't necessarily the best for you because you lose your proprioception, your ability to feel the ground and you get into something that might be too soft for certain people, especially if they're having say planter issues or something like that. So I kind of call it an epidemic in footwear right now where we're kind of going too soft from the foam on the foam side, especially in the U S what do you think? I think the soft thing is a response to I think that's a focus group thing where now when you're when people from the shoe companies go out and say you know they've got their their wear test group you know as part of their development team um, people because people aren't as, tend to be not as competitive as they used to be where now you've got people who are running races more as an event um, people tend to and I don't know why, but things have changed and people like a softer shoe now. Um, it's less about the performance of the shoe and more about how it feels, you know? Um, and I think that's what that is. Yeah. I think it's coming from, you know, you've got maybe we're a little bit heavier and so res- uh, a super responsive shoe, maybe it doesn't feel as good. You know, right. it, it feels a little harsh. Like some people, that first adios, they're like, man, that thing is harsh, which I loved. It, w- it is, but that's the first shoe that I wore that I understood what the term responsive meant. Right. Where I, I did a tempo run in it, and I felt like it was actually propelling me down the road. Right. Versus something that's too soft where you're feeling like you're stuck in the mud. Yeah. So I just want to briefly get on my soapbox here with you and say, people, soft might feel good in the store, but please... At least give yourself a chance to experience a firm, responsive shoe to see what that feels like. It might not feel good in the store. Buy it with some faith. Go try it. Do some yep. speed work in it and see how it feels. Yeah. I mean, most shoes are sold within the first minute of them being tried. You know, people put them on. They're like, oh, wow. that feels great. <laughs> it's so soft and plush. <laughs> and then, you know, 30 miles later. Not so you know, good. Yeah, it's not so good. But that's that's where the business is now. So, so I want to ask one more question about footwear, <clears throat> especially because I'm an old school fitter. I'm a co-owner of a running shoe specialty store who hasn't been on the shoe floor very often for a long, long time. And uh, when I came back to paying attention to what was going on um, in terms of technologies and everything else, everybody started talking about this term drop. And, you know, I, I think, as Chris alluded to earlier, this idea of having a minimalist shoe that was the sort of the five finger, mm-hmm. you know, like running barefoot, this idea of drop came in in terms of how much buildup that midsole material is right. and, and which will affect a variety of different things. Give us a little short history because we're still selling shoes at every store based on drop. And I know I would tell you I've explained this concept 
which I understand, even though it wasn't part of my fitting or my understanding of footwear because everybody was in the same range or we didn't talk about drop, give people a very short, quick primer on what drop is, what you're talking about, and number two, how, what you would, what kind of decision making you would you would push an athlete based on a variety of different reasons why that drop might be important or valuable to them, or is it all just hogwash and bullshit anyway? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so drop is the offset of the shoe, which is the difference in height and the heel and mm-hmm. the forefoot. Um, standard measured in millimeters. Me- measured in millimeters. Um, it used to be the standard was like. 12 or 13. Um, once the minimalist movement came around, you started seeing six and four and even lower. Um, a lot of shoes now are four, six, and eight. And the number of shoes you see that are at 12 are fewer and far between. Um, I think um, the very first shoes I saw that um, went with lower offsets were Adidas had a line back in the late 90s. Um, the feet you could wear mm-hmm. stuff that were it was around for a couple of years and then it disappeared but it was lower offset and at the you know the marketing just wasn't right at the time um does it make a real difference i think for some people it does most people you know there are people who come in like i can only run in a four millimeter shoe <laughs> that i just i can't run in anything you know less i can't run anything more if i run more i just can't run and then you put like when i was fitting shoes back on the shoe floor like oh i can only run in i've been running in Convara, uh, which is four and i can only run in four and then you'd put like an adios or you'd put a new balance 1400 or whatever that was a little higher but it, they were so well engineered they were so smooth they'd go oh, man these are awesome <laughs> and you wouldn't tell them it was 10 or whatever they're like oh you know so it's just a number, ultimately. Now, some people who have some biomechanical issues maybe need one or the other, higher or lower. People with ca- Achilles tendon Achilles issues. tendon issues probably right. would be better served with a higher offset. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're better off rotating two or three different types of shoes. Um, it To me, it's... Ultimately, we get hung up on numbers way, way, way too much, and rather than just getting a shoe that feels really, really good. Not to mention the dirty secret is it's 4 or 8 or 12 as measured by the company in the way they measure, right. but if you get somebody who actually does uniform measurements across all shoes, some of the marketed, some of those that are right. marketed at 4 are actually 8, some right. that are 8 are actually less well, and or more. A, a 4 millimeter offset shoe in a size men's 14 has a different ramp angle than a women's size five, right? The the one is a lot more acute. So it's just a number. Um, I kind of think the lowest you can go comfortably works really well. But you know there, you know there are people who are like they're gonna be fine wearing any shoe. You could put any shoe on them, and they're gonna go out and run and. F- they'll stay healthy and i kind of suspect that you're one of those people if you can run uh sub 60 quarter in a pair of boots you're he's also running on his forefoot so the heel the heel and toe doesn't matter (laughs) but uh you know and then some people you know are need a little more specificity i guess it's i ultimately if the shoe feels really really good 
and it and you don't it get injured. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but I think rotating shoes is really really good because it makes you know you you go through a different range of motion every it day. It goes back to what we just talked about at the beginning, which is go with what feels natural regardless right. of the stats, yeah, or the category, yep. or what you think about how it looks. Yeah, we we do a really we in the in the running industry and probably a lot of other industries do a really good job of deconstructing everything, you know, training. Um, business models, shoe design, we deconstruct it and then focus on one little variable to the point where, you know, it's baby bathwater or forest trees kind of thing. Yep. And we forget about the big picture. I never forget watching you as I was learning in the industry when somebody would come in and had a really hard time and, you, you know, you'd bring out like 10 shoes for them because they're just like picky about every little thing. And then, and then they would get to maybe two or three and they were trying to decide, but they were taking a long time. And I remember, I, I never forget, you'd, you'd stop them and say something to the effect of, close your eyes and tell me which one feels most natural to you. Turn your brain off, close your eyes, which one feels most natural to you? And they would answer and you would say, that's it. Let's go with that one. Of course, then it would still take some time to convince yeah. them to go with that yeah. one. Well, because the color wasn't quite <laughs> right. Yeah, and they were leaning towards Oh, my God. This is the best or, or, shoe I've ever worn, but I just can't Or they would green. let their mind come back yeah. into it and be like, but I don't like right. Nike normally or I don't right. like Brooks. Anyway, yeah. so if, if, if anyone's listening, keep that as their first principle, which is that listen to your feet. They don't lie. Whatever feels most natural to you is probably going to be right. And All one right. thing, really quickly, I want to I want to make sure that you said you guys said something because that was a little it could be a little confusing to the listener. We talked about pick the shoe that feels most natural. And then you kind of went off a little bit on those folks on those shoes that when you stepped into it it felt super comfortable, mm-hmm. right? You guys did make a critical distinction between natural and soft and comfortable and cushy, right? right. And I just want to make sure our listener hears that yep. that you guys weren't saying the shoe that was most comfortable on the shoe floor, right. you were saying the shoe that felt felt most natural to your foot based on its width and its and yep. and and what your the idiosync idiosyncratic yes. tr- practic- situations about your particular foot. You weren't just saying always go with the the. Anyway, it could be a little confusing. That, I no, want to well make that, sure people that's a very that. important distinction. It is not what's most comfortable. It's what feels most natural. What disappears right. when you put on put it right. on, and that is different from the shoe that. Sometimes right. that is different from the shoe that makes you go ah right. Yeah. So thank yeah, you sit- for clarifying. Sitting sitting in a big plush Lexus is gonna be more comfortable than sitting in an old uh, VW Rabbit, mm-hmm. right? So and but the uh, rabbit might feel more natural the to you. The rabbit may be more more natural, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's the shoe floor is a is completely different from the road, and um, for whatever reason now. A lot of fitting stops at the shoe floor. So, so coffee with John. We've talked too much. Coffee. We've talked Holy crap. track and field. <laughs> talked marathon. We've talked Japanese marathon. We've talked training, training principles, coaching. We've talked footwear. We've kind of covered the gamut. How do we wrap this up, Steve? So I, I've got something I I've been thinking about, and I I know I can ask John this question. I'm going to start off on in typical assistant fashion and state my opinion and see how everybody else deals with it, right? But, John, if you remember when we worked at the late, great Runtex, um, there's a brand-new article out in the Austin Monthly magazine um, and, a, and a great profile of Paul Carrozza. I, I had the opportunity to be quoted on it, and um, 
paying due tribute to the godfather of Austin running. And in my opinion, the godfather of basically functional footwear for running specialty, um, in my opinion, say what you will about business practices. He was and is still a, a, who we all learned from right. a lot of things. But we had a we had a process there. We all all those people who worked there, we were we called it the trifecta, right? We worked the shoe floor, right? We coached, and we put on events, race events, yeah. Um, and so, tell talk a little bit about, and you you mentioned it a little bit earlier in um, you kind of started getting that direction, but we didn't wrap. We, I think this is a great way to wrap it all up. Talk a little bit about the argument of generalist versus specialist. And the idea that there's something to learn from everything, as you said, something to benefit from everything all the time in training. Right. Talk a little bit about your, the sort of where you came from. You were you were involved in the running world before you ever got to Runtex. Runtex sort of solidified many right. of the thinkings that you have and I have. We both come from the same place, and where that all has played out under the auspices of generalist versus specialist. Well, there there will. I haven't been in every running shop in the country, but I don't think there will ever be anything that was like Runtex back in the heyday. I mean, it was like, it was a mecca. And it was where I think that Runtex down on Riverside was the first like real running specialty store at that level. You know, there there was Boulder Running Company and certainly other places that were um, that were great shops. Super but, Jock and Jill. Yeah, super. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was nothing like Runtex. And one of the things Paul did was, uh, you know, we had to do a little bit of everything. I mean, and so Saturdays and Sundays could be long <laughs> because you'd have to be at a race to set up at 4 a.m. And, you know, maybe we'd been out till maybe, maybe <laughs> till one or two and you sleep on the sofa and you get up and you go, you build uh, a start finish line and then you go work the shoe floor. And this was working a shoe floor where there'd be like eight or 10 or 12 people fitting shoes all day long. And it was packed. You're helping two, three people at a time yeah, and all day. Governor Bush would come in and <laughs> Willie Nelson would come in. And Jerry Jeff Walker. Jerry, <laughs> and it was just, it was chaos all the time. And you had to manage it. Some of us managed it better than others. And so by being a generalist, you became a specialist because you learned a little bit about everything and you could take from all these different places and it's just like with training or with your education or whatever if you you know you can be awesome at fitting shoes biomechanics all that kind of stuff but you're not really part of the of the big picture then and yeah there's there was nothing like it and i regularly run into people all over the country you know, at expos everywhere, like they find out you worked at Runtex and they're like, oh my God, that place was amazing, you know? And um, yeah, I think most of us can say very honestly that we n- we wouldn't be doing any of this if it hadn't been for Runtex, for sure. No, I think there's no doubt about that. And uh, I, uh, anyway, that article just came out and um, it brought back to me not, not only what a, an amazing place it was to work and to be around people, but also sort of brought me straight back to the real reason why things happen. Innovation is essential and important, but it still has to be based on some fundamental generalist principle. Like, you know, a biologist, let's say, let's, let's, let's take the case of, of Darwin. Darwin can't give us the theory of evolution if he didn't understand 
what import getting around the Cape of getting around the, the Cape of Goodhorn was. It, it, it wouldn't be able to tell us about some historical thing or the ideas about different. How do you see at the Galapagos that there's all one, only one specific? All these animals came from a from a, a really a different place, right? He came up with this entire theory that required him to have an understanding of so many different aspects. And as athletes, I ask my athletes, be ready to run, as I use the term of every athlete bringing all their tools to come to battle right. because you never know you, what you're going to need when you need it. And I think this idea of being a generalist and being able to do just about everything all the time is is doesn't mean that you're not capable of getting into the minutia and digging deep on specific paces or on a specific product or on a specific um, um, sort of theory, but that you're able to generally make wide-ranging generalizations yet still handling a specific need for an individual athlete or an individual in an individual case well you have a you have a greater appreciation you have a greater and deeper love for it and that's why 21 years after meeting you for the first time or whatever i had like i love i love doing what i'm doing because working at runtex like you you were thrown in headfirst and if you if you didn't absolutely love it you didn't make it out and but you use you both use generalism as a perspective to become specialists correct which to me is a fascinating is it's the interplay between the two things the generalism gives you exposure to things that you then go deep down into and become specialists on which might be shoes coaching Japanese marathon, <laughs> marathon of all It's places. the Lydiard Pyramid, right? <laughs> yeah. The Lydiard so, Pyramid. Yeah, so, yeah, you, at some point you have to specialize to be effective, right. but you come at it from a general It's like Wikipedia. Perspective. You, you <laughs> give me one human being that goes to Wikipedia and doesn't click on another link immediately <laughs> when they go to the link about the first thing that they were looking for because yeah. we all want to dig deeper. I don't. Yeah. Oh, well, I, that, <laughs> that's a pet peeve of mine. I, I have to finish something before I can start the next. <laughs> oh, I can't do I that I refuse now. to let the, the intermediary I, links suck me in. I guess I didn't mean that that they wouldn't link you in but just that that was available yeah, and right. and and there to get deeper where and when you needed no to. i click on so many links i forget where I, why i was there originally. <laughs> like i can't remember I can see what that. I was so so there you go i have no idea where we just came and where we just went but that we ended with that which is that you've got to you've got to be a generalist in order to be come good at anything <laughs> and whether that relates to training or racing or shoes who knows? But hopefully you guys were entertained by this Coffee and Beer with John episode or series of episodes. Yeah, thanks for coming along the journey with thanks us. Thanks for coming along the journey. That was fun. We might do this again and have John on because you are an interesting guest for sure. Our running idiot savant for the podcast, Running Rogue. So thanks again, everybody, for joining us. As always, check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or the Facebook at Rogue Running. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Lates.